Heavenly Father, we come to you on this great morning. We're so thankful just to be here and to be here together. I pray, God, as you just give us instruction from your word, that you do so in in the way that that we need. Um, Lord God, I pray that you would just just send your spirit here. Let your, your spirit just instruct us and equip us and call us and maybe challenge us in the way that, that, that we need, in the way that you're most glorified. And Father, I pray that whatever the, the, the level of obedience that you call us to, whatever that is, God, I pray that you just give us the strength to do it. And we just believe this, and we're just praying this in um, the matchless name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Man, I'll tell you, that the last song that we just sung, like I so want that to be true of my life. Like I just, that I would just be a person, that, that you would be able to look at me, like if you were just to kind of observe my life, that you would say, man, that is somebody who just gave it all. I, I don't want to be a half-hearted person. I want to be an all-in type of person. And yet we're going to see in the midst of, of this message today that there's some difficulty that we're going to have to wrestle with. There's some difficulty because we live in a culture that is so abundant. We live in a culture like we, can, we just have so much of everything. We have so much more than what a lot of other people even have. A lot of other countries that couldn't even fathom to be able to go into Walmart and see all of the versions and varieties of macaroni and cheese, right? Like you go there, there's craft. If you're into craft... There's great value if you're into cheap, you know, in macaroni and cheese. And then if you're the, the ritzy version, you're like Velveeta shells and cheese. Amen for that, anyone? Yeah, that's what I'm, see, that's the wealthy people in the room right there. It's like, like, you know, it's like, but we live in a culture that is so abundant. How do we not get wrapped up in it? How do we not get wrapped up in it? So we're going to see that in this passage today. First, I want to tell you a story, kind of teeing up this content. In San Francisco, a thief was pedaling his bicycle through, uh, on a sidewalk, and there was a woman who was on her phone. She was kind of fiddling on her phone, and the thief went up and picked up her phone and just kept driving or riding the bike and took off with her phone. And um, she was sitting there, and she's kind of, you know, Bewildered, hey, what, what in the world is going to come of my phone now? So as the guy was leaving, what he didn't realize is that when she was actually on her phone, she was actually using a brand new app that had a GPS locator device on it. So as, as the thief took the phone and he went off on the sidewalk, they found him a couple moments later because she was actually using a tool and it worked remarkably. They found him in no time at all. I love the story of stupid criminals when they get caught. I just really do. I love those stories. I'm like, really? Yeah, that's brilliant. Good job for you. But one thing I think we all can appreciate is this. We don't want to be at the other end of someone's joke, do we? We don't want to be at, we don't want to, to have a joke at the expense of ourselves. And I think there's, there's a kind of a lie that's perpetuated. Maybe you agree, maybe you don't. We can disagree on this. But I think there's a lie that's perpetuated around our culture right now. And I think we are actually, um, that our lives rather, bear fruit of this. You see, a lie that, that I was told a long time ago. And it's no joking matter. The lie that, that, that I was told many years ago that if I work hard enough, that I'm going to be content. 
that if I work hard enough, not only am I going to be content, but I'm going to be able to buy me things, and those things are going to make me content. Then I was told, well, you need to go out and you need to marry the right person, and that person is going to make you content. And then another lie that was perpetuated from those previous lies is, here's what you need. You need to have some kids. Then your life is going to be content. See, and I was told that lie. Maybe you have been told that lie in the past too. But what's dangerous about that lie is we start to believe it, and then we tell it to ourselves. And then we wonder why that we don't have contentedness in our life. And the joke's on us because we believe the lie. The tension in this text today speaks directly into this, and I'm so glad that the Bible is crystal clear when it comes to instructions of everyday life. The tension is this. How can we break the bond of discontentedness in a culture tethered to overabundance? Like, how could we break the bond of discontentedness in a culture that's tethered to overabundance? This, the culture we live in, and by the way, I don't want to make you feel bad about the culture we live in. I think we're a blessed people, all of us. I think the grace of God has just has been so evident to believer and unbeliever in our culture. But I think all of that causes us to have greater responsibility. And that's what this talk is about, is how are we handling that responsibility so that the joke isn't on us. So how can we break the bond of discontentedness in a culture that's tethered over abundance? You see, the reason why discontentedness and overabundance are connected is this, because the overabundance, if you feel the need or you can have the, just go around and you can get anything anytime you want, you will never be content with what you have and you will always long for the next best thing. That's the reason why when you drive through town, and you go to all of these car dealerships, they're all full. But over a short period of time, they all empty themselves, and then they fill back up again. Do you know why? Because we buy them. That's why. There's nothing wrong with having a new car. But every time we drive by, it's a lure. And it's, it's a challenge to our contentedness. Do I need this car? Do I not need this car? And it's a challenge to our contentedness. The, the bottom line thing I believe that you will find in this passage in 1 Timothy 6 is where we're going to be, starting in verse 3, is we're going to see a path. And I believe it is, it's such a clear path. And I don't know how we could have missed this. But I think it is such a clear path through the, through the haze of overabundance that at the end of this path, we will find a contentedness that is not only attractive and not only provides what we need personally, but also would be attractive for those who would be observing our life. 1 Timothy 6, verse 3, I'll, I'll kind of give you a, a backdrop of this. I, I love 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy particularly. I love these, these letters of the Bible because they were written in a personal nature. A guy by the name of Paul, or we call the Apostle Paul, wrote these personal letters to Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor, and he actually pastored the church in Ephesus. So if you've read your Bible and you've heard Ephesus or Ephesians, um, the letter to the church in Ephesians, Timothy pastored that church. So when Paul is writing this, this letter to Timothy, Timothy's rather young in his faith. And not only is he young in his faith, he's really young in his leadership. And we see that in some earlier parts of this particular letter to Timothy, he was kind of timid. He was kind of timid. 
So you're going to see as kind of the, the, the tenor of, of Paul's voice over Timothy changes, and it changes for us too as we get into this passage. But Timothy was kind of timid. We see no evidence that his father, listen to this, mothers and grandmothers, we, we see no evidence that, he, that his father was in the faith, but what we do see is that his mother and grandmother were in the faith. So this is maybe one of the earliest examples of three generations of believers, all in the same family. Mothers, grandmothers, never think that you can't have influence on your kids, even if you have an unbelieving husband. So this letter is very personal, and I want us to take it personal. I want us to take it as personal as maybe a mentor or, or a spiritual father speaking some words over us to try and help us avoid some mistakes and to help us to be able to help others not make mistakes. Let's dig deep. Verse 3. If anyone teaches the false doctrines that does not agree with the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He starts really heavy, doesn't he? He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. This right here, listen to me, I know we're, we're a church, really a melting pot of people of all sorts of different beliefs and backgrounds. This is, this is I think, one of the key texts that every prosperity preacher needs to preach to themselves. Because what Paul is warning Timothy of is that you start to think that the preaching and the declaring of God's word is for financial gain. It is not. And I want to say that kindly over you, but I know, like I said, we come from a bunch of different uh, faith groups and environments, and I welcome that. It's awesome. I mean, I think God is glorified by just the mix of people we have in both services on any given Sunday. But, but with that, I think we have to be true to the Word of God and true to maybe some of your background. For this reason, this is the reason why uh, the, the prosperity gospel is a false gospel, because it's rooted on an individual gaining more money, and it's not rooted, listen to me, it's not rooted in the gospel message of Jesus Christ. So I give you permission, if you ever see me starting to believe that lie, that is being spoken there, I want you to come, I want you to come to my house, I want you to call me, I want you to text me, I want you to come into my office and say, Pastor, I think we're, you're swaying away. I want you to. I welcome that. I don't want to get this wrong, but I also don't want you to believe wrong. So, apparently it happened back then as well. They were starting to believe that, that godliness was a means to financial gain. You see in the next verse, verse 6, he gives a contradictory statement to what he's just talked about, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. That's really the, the I, see, I think, the, the centerpiece verse in this whole passage. So if you're an underliner, uh, the highlighter in your Bible or in your Bible app, this would be a great thing for you to keep in mind. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. It sounds like a warning like your dad said to you when you got in trouble, right? Doesn't that sound like that? I brought you into this world and I can take you out. I don't know. Maybe you heard that. Maybe you didn't. Verse 8. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. There's contentedness, contentment. 
People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin, the word of God says, and destruction. Verse 10, for the love of the money is the root of all kinds of evil, often misapplied, often misunderstood verse. Look at it very carefully. For the, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. If you're a church person, you probably know someone who was in the ministry, but for financial gain, their own personal financial gain, disrupted the work of God and most likely was eliminated from the ministry, bearing fruit to the truth of what is said right here in 1 Timothy. Contentedness is elusive. I'll tell you something else that's elusive. A snipe. Anybody know what a snipe is? I grew up in the north, and I, I, was, I was told by my uncles, by the way, I always refer to my uncles as crazy uncles, because they are, and they know it's true. Love my uncles. They're just a lot of fun. They're, they're kind of wild, though. Love them. But, but one of the things that my uncles just love to do with all of his nephews particularly is take them snipe hunting. When I say snipe hunting, you're not actually out there with a weapon. You're out there with a gunny sack. So what they do is apparently I'm not the only one. And they take you out deep in the woods and they drop you off. And here's what they say. We're going to be over there. We're going to be away from you. I need you guys to sit here and I need you to be really, really quiet. We're going to be over there hunting snipe too. But I need you to be really, really quiet. And I need you to just sit here with your gunny sack. And just know that snipe, they don't fly high in the air. They stay really low to the ground. So if you see one, you just jump out with your gunny sack and then you can swoop them up in your bag. By the way, there's no such thing as snipes, just in case you're wondering. So they were more elusive than what we thought. And, and they, it, they just tormented just all of us nephews and take us out there. And they would take us out there just long enough to where they would be able to hear one of the nephews crying loudly. And then, then we would hear a snicker off in the distance. And then they would come in and swoop in and save us and the joke would be on us. You see, it was so elusive it didn't exist. I think one of the things that, that I see is the contentment is so elusive too. It's so elusive. Yet we want it, we desire it, we long for it. But it's elusive, it's hard to find. So I want to give you the things, uh, four different things that speak into, actually it speaks into verse 6, 1 Timothy 6, 6. And the verse said this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And I want to give you, uh, I believe, four things that are rooted in godliness that leads to contentment. The first one you see is source, taken from verse 3. The source, godliness, the source of godliness, that being Christ himself. That means if somebody has committed their life to Christ, the reason why we can have the source of our contentedness is because we have a satisfaction for our souls. Please listen to this, somebody. Because we have a satisfaction for our souls. That we don't have to long for material things anymore because we have found something more powerful, more, more satisfying that, that leads to this contentedness. The source being Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Not just in a saving way, but he becomes the Lord of our life, that he is in charge of our life, and he becomes the source of our life. Secondly, also from verse 3, the substance. We're given just the godliness, being connected to these four things that leads to contentment, the source being Jesus, the substance, godly teaching. I believe firmly one of the reasons why Christians aren't living the abundant life is because they're not reading the Word of God. They're not reading it. They're trying to base their faith existence off of what I say and not their own walk with God. When they crack the book, they blow the dust off and they read it for themselves and allow God's spirit to illuminate some truth into them and to equip them. It's the substance of this contentedness. It's godly teaching. It's godly teaching. But we've got to put our nose in the book and we have to do what God tells us to do. Second thing, third thing, the standard. The standard is Christ-likeness. The standard is Christ-likeness. The standard is the life of Christ. We should have a life, listen to me, Christian, we should have a life that day by day more resembles Jesus' life. That's the standard. And then fourth, the strength. This taken not from this passage. This taken from another Actually, another passage that is often misquoted. For I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me from Proverbs 4.13. Actually, Proverbs 12 is necessary for understanding Proverbs. Or excuse me, I'm all mixed up. Uh, verse 12 is, is necessary for us to understand verse 13. That, that when we're called to do difficult things because, because Jesus compels us to do difficult things, because the Spirit of God calls us and draws us out to do difficult things, that the Spirit of God empowers us, it strengthens us to do it. So it's not our mere might, but it's God's power through us. See, I believe if we kind of figure these things out, that we're trusting in the source of Jesus, the substance of godly teaching, and the Word of God, and the standard that we're pursuing a life that resembles Jesus' life. And that we're using the strength that every Christian is given. That that will lead to contentedness. One way I want you to understand the word godliness. Because oftentimes people hear the word godliness. And it's just kind of they blank out and be like oh that sounds like something that I'm not. I want to give you a very simple way of understanding, and I think this is the way, when Paul uses it, this is what he means, the genuine Christian life. So what's godliness? It's the genuine Christian life. It's not that complicated now, is it? Verse 7 and 8, they say something, and I actually want to tie in another passage from Ecclesiastes 5.10, speaking into the fact that we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it. But we will be content with our food and clothing, with the things that God provides. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says this, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. You see, if we love money, you just have this insatiable desire for it. It's going to lead to all kinds of grief and all kinds of trouble. Because your eyes are going to be on that money. Because you can't love both God and money. So it's going to be one or the other. And if your life is, is consumed with the pursuit of more and more and more and the overabundance, you will not be content. Because whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves 
wealth is never satisfied with their income. Also, Ecclesiastes 5 says this, Even so, I have noticed one thing, at least, that is good. It's good for people to eat and drink and enjoy their work under the sun during the short life that God has given them, to accept their lot in life. And it is a good thing, this is Ecclesiastes 5.19, it is a good thing to receive wealth from God and the good health to enjoy it. Okay? So it's money is not necessarily the issue. It's where your heart is so far, right? To enjoy your work and accept your lot in life, this is indeed a gift from God. God keeps such people so busy enjoying life that they take no time to brood over the past. Wow. Man, I want my life to look like that. That I would understand that everything that I have and the things that I'm working for in any type of material thing that I have is a gift from God. It's God's grace to me to be leveraged for his glory. And then it also would be for our good. And that's what you see in verse 20. That God keeps such people so busy enjoying life that they have no time to brood over the past. They don't have to dwell on the past. They don't have to think about the past. And I lost my money doing this and I put my money in the market here and and the market dipped and I lost all my money. There's all my retirement. I can't believe I spent all my money in in that thing. He says, no, no, no. When you're at this level, You can enjoy life and you don't brood over the past. You don't dwell on the past. You don't have to to live in the past. You can simply enjoy life today. I love the vivid picture that John Piper paints. John Piper is a theologian and pastor, in case you're not familiar with the name. He said this, Picture 269 people entering eternity in a plane crash. So there's 269 people and... They were flying in a plane, and the plane crashed, and all of them have died. He says, before the crash, there is noted on this plane a politician, a millionaire, a corporate executive, a playboy and his playmate, and a missionary kid on his way back from visiting his grandparents. And then after the crash, they stand before God, utterly stripped of every MasterCard, every checkbook, every credit line, every image, all the clothes, all the success, all the books, all the Hilton reservations, the politician, the executive, the playboy, and the missionary kid on level ground with absolutely nothing in their hands but what they brought with them in their hearts. And this is what he said. Oh, how absurd and tragic the lover of money will seem on that day. When we stand before the Lord, which we all will, and if all we have is the stuff that we tried to bring into eternity, we are going to have a life that is absurd. And I believe, just as John Piper said, that is tragic. Because if we live a life for the consumption of things, we will not have contentedness. Because our life would be about us. Be about us. First Timothy 6.11 said this. You want some direct application from the word of God? I'll give you some right now. He says, but you, man of God or woman of God, flee from all of this. That's from the love of money, the pursuit of money. Flee from all this. 
Pursue righteousness, pursue godliness, pursue faith, pursue love, pursue endurance, pursue gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. It's a very firm word. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of these many witnesses. So Paul has given this charge to Timothy and he loves Timothy. And he says, you need to flee from all this. It has brought many good people to their knees. It has brought many people to a life that is not content. It's brought many people to all they can do is think about their past and they can't enjoy their present. And Paul, as a spiritual father and mentor over Timothy, says, flee from all those things. And he, stand, and he says, and run to gentleness, endurance, faith, godliness, righteousness, love. And he says, fight the good fight of faith. Let me just encourage you with this. We have to fight the good fight of faith against materialism. We have to fight the good fight of faith against instant gratification. We have to fight the, the good fight of faith against consumerism. That viewing everything in life is just something you can consume and discard at your will and your disposal. We have to fight the good fight of faith that says the American dream is not God's best for me. We have to fight the good fight of faith to say, you know what? I was told the lie. I'm not believing the lie. I'm not going to live the life of a lie. The joke is no longer on me. But that's fighting the good fight of faith. There's a transition in this passage, and we're going to jump just headlong into it in verse 17. Verse 17 begins with the word command. This is a very militaristic word that, that he changes where he's, he's still the spiritual mentor. He's still the spiritual father. He still loves Timothy, but he also knows that Timothy's a little bit timid, so now he uses this more militaristic word, and this, this word command, it means to charge viewed maybe as a direct order from a commanding officer in the military. He says, I command you, Timothy. May we receive this as a command from somebody who loves us, who's trying to instruct us in a path to contentedness. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides with us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them, verse 18, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So he says, command. And he says, command those who are rich. You may be taking this perspective right now, or, or, and maybe you've been told this bit of mistruth in the past, that, that, that poor equals godly, and that rich equals ungodly. That's simply not true, and it's not biblical. A God by the name of Abraham, maybe if, you've, if you grew up in church at all, you're even familiar with that. He's, he's known a, among several different world religions. Abraham was wealthy. Job was wealthy. Solomon, really, really wealthy. David, wealthy. There's a gentleman by the name of Theophilus, and he literally funded Luke, the Gospel of Luke, 
the, the historical account that, that Luke was able to study and dig up from the people who were there, Theophilus funded uh, that research, the research of Luke. Theophilus was a wealthy man. You just know him as just a footnote in, in the redemption story of God. But he also funded the, the history, uh, the research for the historical document of Acts. Or the Acts of the Apostles is maybe what your Bible says. Theophilus funded that. And the only thing you know about Theophilus is that. It's kind of this footnote. But that was somebody who was wealthy and he leveraged his wealth for God's glory. And ultimately, even for our good. Because without the generosity of Theophilus, maybe, maybe the Gospel of Luke doesn't even exist. Maybe, maybe we have no account for the early church without Theophilus. I don't know. So God isn't saying that to be rich is, is ungodly and to be poor is godly. Please don't misunderstand me. It's not a matter of having the wealth. It's a matter of, does that wealth have you? That's what it comes down to. Does that wealth have you? So I want to just throw a couple other verses onto this discussion. Psalm 62.10 says this, If riches increase, do not set your hearts on them. Now you see this teaching is consistent, Old and New Testament. Also, Proverbs 13.22 says this, A good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children. There's nothing wrong with having some wealth. It's not the point. It's not. So when he goes through and he says, he's talking about rich people or wealthy people. It's not that he's against that. Now, you automatically could be thinking, well, I'm not rich because you have this perception of what being rich is. And usually rich is just the, ne- just the next financial stratus level from where you are. And we always think, well, they're rich. Let me tell you how rich we all are, even if you're at the poverty level. Some current statistics. If you have a family income of $25,000, you are the richest 17% in the world today. This would be considered poverty, poverty level in the United States for a family to afford to live off of this. If your family income is $40,000, you're the richest 11.3% in the world. Probably a little bit more of us in that little realm. If your family income is $60,000, you are the richest 6.4% in the world. Maybe a few more. That's probably the sweet spot for most folks. 60 grand. Maybe for you, you're, you're, I think, in the minority here, but certainly exists here within our fellowship. The 75% family income just did your taxes. Don't know how much money you made. But if it was 75 grand, you're in the top 4.4% in the world today. Now, I don't know if we have any of these or not. If so, I would like to have a conversation with you after the service today. But if you're over or at the $100,000 a year family income level, you are of the richest 2.5% in the billions upon billions upon billions of people who live on planet Earth. We are rich. 
we're wealthy. We're wealthy. So now let's go back to this passage. Now that we've identified who we are, that it's not just someone else, it's not just the next financial level you're climbing to, it's not just the the position that you're striving for, Paul says to Timothy and says to us, command, firm word, command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Last bit of application, verse 18, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share a little phrase I come up with, something maybe you can take home. I think maybe it's just the, the, the direct application of what we just read is this. The more that generosity flows out of me, the more content I will be. The more that generosity flows out of me, the more content I will be. The more that generosity flows out of me, the more content I will be. So the more that generosity flows out of me, the more content I will be. Yesterday, uh, my son and I, we went for a run in, in our neighborhood. There's a little trail. It's a, it's a one mile dead end, turn around and come back kind of trail. Um, and we were going up up this dirt path and it kind of widened a little bit. And um, as, as we're running, just as we do from time to time. And uh, we're going up, and, and we, I looked up and noticed that, like, there was this huge like, reservoir puddle of water. Water looked like filthy from a distance. But uh, as we got up closer to the water, um, like literally about 30 feet away, the water just had a, like, it had a stink that, that wasn't even a stink. It was a stank. You know what I mean? It was like that. It was bad, bad, bad. It just had a stank. And like literally both of us, like, like in unison, neither one of us can sing, but man, we were in perfect time. We were like, ooh, and all jumped to the side just to completely avoid this stank water that was so stagnant and sitting there. And, and I was reminded of, of a quote from an ancient theologian, a guy by the name of Bernard of Clairvaux. And Bernard of Clairvaux had this, this great thing when he's talking about, and I think it's just a vivid illustration of the Christian life. And he says that the, that the Christian life is not to be a reservoir to where we just collect and collect and collect, and we just have our money, we just do our thing, and we gain this, and it's and where it's a reservoir, where ultimately it's about us. He says, no, 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 no. The Christian life is not a reservoir. It's a canal. You see, a canal is... It takes something from somewhere else and it sends it where it needs to go. It takes something from somewhere else and it sends it where it needs to go. Where a reservoir, maybe you're thinking of a person right now who's a reservoir, I don't know. But a reservoir, ultimately, is just a collection. And it exists for a little while. But it stinks. It stinks. And yet the canal It takes from somewhere else and sends it on where it needs to. See, I think that quote was awesome because for us, if our life, look at me, look at me, if our life, our financial life, if we we take all of our funds and we just build our own reservoir, our life will stink. And that stench will keep other people away 
from us. It will. That if we just, we're just takers, we just got to have this and I can't wait till this check comes in and how can I use this person? How can I get some food off their table? How can I have this experience where it's all about me? We become a reservoir and it becomes nasty and it becomes foul and it will repulse others. And isn't the gospel supposed to be so attractive from our life that other people would look at it and that they would want to hear the gospel and experience the gospel, the fullness in Christ because of our life? Our life is to be a sweet aroma of God's goodness and God's grace. And when we take God's resources that he's given us and we ourselves are that canal, the connection point between what he's given us and we, we have it and we direct it where it needs to go, our life becomes a sweet aroma of contentedness, of grace, And God is glorified in us. So I want to give you four ways as we're just finishing out this whole series. I want to give you four principles of financial contentment. We spent these four weeks and I just want to boil it down to these four things. First one is gain all you can by working hard. Gain all you can by working hard. I realize that, that too has become confusing. People are afraid to work hard nowadays. And, and they're waiting for somebody else to work hard and then give them the money so they don't have to work hard. But we just saw from Ecclesiastes 5, there's a value into working hard. There's value in that. There's, that's, we can enjoy our life and even work hard. So gain all you can by working hard. Secondly, save all you can by saving intentionally. We talked about that. Thirdly, Give all you can by giving generously right here in this passage. And lastly, spend what you can and enjoy it graciously, which we are also reminded of in this passage and in Ecclesiastes 5. But let me tell you how awesome this is. Our lives, for every Christian, you're to be content in Jesus. And when we understand our life financially, to be a canal, that we would receive God's money, that we would utilize it in the way that he sees fit, and that we would do with it what he tells us to do. What we find is our own contentedness. We find our own contentedness because we're managing money God's way. And when we do so, we break free. And breaking free changes everything. 